morning, guys. Can you guys hear me? We're on. Good to see you. Man, this is so awesome. So good to see all you guys here. Uh, to our online community as well, again, I just I've said this every week. Um, thank you for uh, tuning in on our live stream on Facebook and or coming and joining and being part of what God's doing here at Calvary Slow. We're so stoked to see what God's doing. It's a fresh momentum um, over these past long, grueling months of just questions of chaos, of anxiety and whatnot. So we're stoked that you guys are here this morning. Um, One thing that we've been acknowledging and recognizing that as we've kind of been coming out of our doors and out of our seclusion, um, there's been a whole new movement and momentum of people coming into the church community here, as well as other churches and all that. So God's doing something really cool on the Central Coast. We're excited to be a part of it. Um, That being said, one of the things that we've been wanting to kind of do and create is space for you to be able to get to know a little bit about our church. So that being said, in a couple weeks, what we're going to be starting on a monthly basis is just kind of a welcome to Calvary Slow. I don't even know what to call it a class. It's more of just like a like a hangout time uh, immediately following the service. Again, this is two weeks. My wife and I will be leading this one. Um, it's a time to just come out for half an hour. You can bring your kids. It'll be kind of like in the indoor area. Um, we don't expect a, a ton of people, but if we do have a ton of people, maybe we'll just do it outdoors. But again, we are allowed to actually meet indoors. Um, you know, up to a certain amount. So we'll probably just do it indoors. It's a way for you to kind of hear a little bit of the history of our church, to understand a little bit of the vision of who we are as a church, and to really understand a little bit of the mission of what we see God calling us to be a part of and engage with as a church on the Central Coast here, uh, just really trying to do the best we can to live out the calling of Jesus. So again, thanks for joining with us here this morning. I want to pray, and then we're going to just jump right in, uh, basically where we left off last week. So we got a lot to cover this morning. So let me pray and then we'll look at it. So if you guys want, you can open up your Bible too as well. We got a scripture that we're going to be kind of leading with jumping into that Psalm 33 verse five. Uh, if you guys need Bibles, go ahead and raise your hand. We have some ushers that would love to get you a Bible. Um, as you're opening up there, I'm going to go ahead and pray. So just, uh, if you'd like, bow your heads and, uh, let's pray. Jesus, thank you for our time together here. Thank you for your presence. I think you were not alone in this world. Thank you that in the midst of chaos and confusion and anxiety, that we have a more sure world. God, that we can anchor our lives into and be able to trust you. So right now, we ask that you would speak to us this morning, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we started a series about three weeks ago. This is, I think, week four, if I'm not mistaken, that we've been in this series uh, we basically just been calling it gospel as center in matters of race, justice, and humanity. Um, I've said this multiple times that uh, normally as a church community, we take books of the Bible and just teach through them expositionally, meaning it's just a big way of saying, uh, expounding, taking apart, line upon line, verse by verse, word by word, in some cases, uh, the heartbeat of what God is trying to communicate through the text. 
Um, we are in a little bit of a topical series over the past few weeks, and we'll be in this for the next few weeks, looking at the subject matter. We feel it's really important for us as a church to be able to do this because of the current situation where we find ourselves as a community, as a church, um, in the midst of a culture that is wrestling with a lot of these things. And we want to be able to do the best we can to try to understand these things in light of Scripture, in light of God's mission for us as God's people here, not only on the Central Coast, but also way beyond trickling over through our online audience, through many of you that maybe uh, have impact in other parts of this state and maybe country and whatnot beyond. But we want to truly embody the life of Jesus. One of the things that I mentioned last week, again, I will repeat it just simply because I realized some of you were either here last week or if you were here last week, you didn't hear it because for whatever reason, we have a tendency, it's, I've always been told, repeat is always good if you really want to emphasize something. So that's what I'm doing. Four things that we're really trying to emphasize why we are doing this. In other words, my intentions as a pastor, why are we doing this? Number one, I'll go through this quick, gospel fluency. We truly, truly believe that part of the problem that we have, either by way of embracing wholesale, the culture's definitions of many of these topics that are at play right now, um, and or simply rejecting them outrightly and being dismissive of the hurt and the pain and the sorrow and the grief and all of these things that many are feeling right now is simply due to the fact that there is a gospel, I don't know, I'm sure if influence is a word, or a non, non-fluency, I guess, non-fluency. In other words, there is a deficiency in our ability or our, our comprehension of the gospel. And so we truly believe that part of our growth process as disciples is to become fluent in the gospel. Uh, like it's a language we fully comprehend and understand, not just simply skate by or get by. You know, many of us have some relationship with another alternate language, but we're not really fluent in it. Like in, like I've said before, Spanish is kind of like that for me. I can kind of get by, but it's very helpful for me to have a Google translator on hand so I can actually fully communicate as best as I can. But even that does not make me fluent. Even that has its deficiencies. And many of us, that's the way we are in our Christian walk. We have bits and pieces of knowledge, but we're not really fluent. If you're a disciple of Jesus, our hope would be that gospel fluency would be something that you begin to move into. Secondly, is faithfulness to God. We truly, ultimately, at the end of the day, are are longing to be faithful to God. Not anything else. To God. To God. Thirdly, Christ-centered unity. We truly believe that at this cultural moment, the enemy is working overtime to bring division, not only to our country, but especially to the church. Again, I've been pastoring for a long time, almost three decades. It's a long time. That's longer than many of you have even been alive on this planet, breathing our air. But the point of the matter is, is this. I have never at another point in my life seen more division in the church than I have today. There's this polarization. And so what I'm trying to do by way of intention is to say we need to have a posture That at the very center of what we believe is Jesus. There's peripheral things that we can hold on to. We can have opinions about certain elements and ideas and concepts, political ideologies. All of those things are fine. But at the end of the day, Jesus is the very one that draws us together. He is our Lord, our master, our savior. God is our father. We have a family. We belong to a family. We're not just simply a gathering or a group or a club. 
we are a family, and family means that we will have discrepancies, and we will have things that we disagree with, but at the end of the day, we're always willing to sit down and have a meal with each other. Even though we may annoy, annoy each other to death, right? We will go to the grave fighting for the unity. We truly believe that's important. Fourthly, spirit-powered love. At the end of the day, we hope to cultivate love within our hearts towards God and towards human beings, right? Vertical and horizontal, both of those. So number one, gospel fluency. Number two, faithfulness to God. Number three, Christ-centered unity. Number four, spirit-empowered love. With that, I'm going to jump in. Hopefully, you guys all have your Bibles open. Psalm 33, verse 5. The title of today's message is, rather than just simply saying, Justice part three, which was last week was two. I thought I'd get a little bit creative. So uh, this message today is just called justice. What does God love? What does God love? And hopefully this psalm will give us a little bit of insight into this. Psalm 33 verse 5 is this little passage we'll look at and then we'll kind of go into the broader uh, teaching on the, 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 um, the theme of what justice is and how it begins to play itself out in the Bible. So, and again, like I've said this before, again, for those of you that have not been with us or tuning in live now, my, our, the way that we've been doing Sunday morning services are, are, have limited the amount of expansiveness of teaching. So uh, I'm under a lot of constraint to try to get everything within a certain time frame. So if I leave something out, that's why. So it'll probably be a part four, five, whatever. So I just, I, I feel that we're going to just keep going until uh, we're done with this stuff that we feel like God is wanting us to really think about and consider. So with that being said, Psalm 33 verse five says this, the Lord loves righteousness and justice and the earth is full of his unfailing love. Let me read that again. This is so good. The Lord loves righteousness and justice and the earth is full of his unfailing love. Uh, this is such a great verse that as you continue to read the rest of the psalm, I'm not going to go into the rest of it, but I think it's helpful for us to consider as we jump into the subject matter this morning. Is Number one, we learn by way of an attribute of who God is, a little bit of what God loves. You know, you can determine a lot about people based on what they love. Show me what you love, and I will not only show you type of person you are, but I will also show you the type of person you're becoming. What you love will shape the person that you are becoming. Think about that. It's not what you know that will shape you. It's what you love. What is your heart? What is the affection of your life cling to, gravitate towards? What are the affections that are constantly being cultivated, that you're dreaming of, that you're thinking of regularly, frequently? What do you spend your money on? Those are all the things that will be indicators of what you love. And what you love will be what you devote your time to. And what you devote your time to, you're in this daily ritual, daily liturgy, becoming shaped by it. So again, asking the question of the text again, what does God love? God apparently, according to the psalmist, he loves righteousness and justice. And he's been with us since the beginning. You know that these are the two words, tzedakah and mishpat, which appear hundreds of times throughout the Old Testament, but also have New Testament variants as well, which we won't get to this very moment. But we're told at this particular point that God loves these things. And the earth is full of his unfailing love. And in Hebrew, the word chesed. God's covenantal, committed, devoted, devotional love. That's who God is. This is what God is like. So we begin to understand a little bit as to why God invites us to develop a posture of 
righteousness and justice ourselves. This is who God is. This is what God loves. This is what God is recognizing and sees how God wired the world. So for the world to function rightly, it's to function rightly in the context of righteousness and justice. When it doesn't function in sync with righteousness and justice, what you have is injustice and unrighteousness. In other words, the world we live in right now, right? And what God is doing in the church, in the community of his people, is remaking an entirely brand new humanity that has been shaped by his righteousness and his justice towards us through Jesus and then making us into those type of people that live out righteousness and justice. So with that being said, let's begin to jump in. I'm going to read a quote from a Dutch Reformed theologian, a guy by the name of Herman Bavnik, great name. He says this, God's justice is both retributive and reparative. Uh, pause real quick, just a highlight. This is really important to identify. Throughout the Bible, it's both. Many of us tend to think, I think I know for me at least, I can speak for myself, I don't want to speak for you, but many of us have thought of God's justice being exclusively in the context of retributive, meaning God hates chaos, God hates injustice, God, God is not an anarchist, so where anarchy and chaos exist, those are things that God looks at and says, I don't want that. And so there's an element where God has retributive justice against those types of uh, injustices that take place. But he goes on to say that God's justice is both retributive and reparative. It not only punishes evil doing, it restores those who are victims of injustice. Yet he goes on to say, yet interestingly, God's restorative justice is far more prominent in Scripture than God's retributive justice. God stands against perverting the justice due to the poor, slaying the innocent, accepting bribes, oppressing the immigrant, the widow, the orphan. God raises them to a position of honor and well-being. So we understand by this quote that these are the things that God is all about. So he has and exercises both retributive justice, punishing evil, chaos, uh, anarchy, things where there's no control, where people are being completely taken care of. But he also has this restorative element or reparative element of justice as well. We've been talking about this. So this is nothing new that we've been looking at on Sunday morning. It's just restated by a guy that can talk way better than I can and has a really cool name. Tim Keller would go on to say something along these lines. He says, biblical justice is not, first of all, a set of bullet points or a set of rules and guidelines. It is rooted in the very character of God, which we just identified, and is the outworking of that character, which is never less than, ju than, than just. Just think about that. First of all, why is there justice in this world? Why is there a concept of justice in this world? Well, I think we can answer that by way of deduction because there's human beings in this world. Like we said a couple, last week, right? Uh, praying mantises do not have an, a category to think about justice or injustice. They just simply don't. Uh, human beings do, though. So when something wrong happens to you, we wave our hand up and we say, that was wrong. Or when kids, even kids, they have a deep sense of right and wrong, even at a very young age. It might be a little bit skewed. It might be weighted a little bit towards their favor. But at the end of the day, there is this deep sense baked in in terms of understanding rightness and wrongness. Why? Because, Scripture tells us, what we looked at, which is sermon number one in this entire series, the image of God. We bear the image of God. And so what we're basically beginning to identify, there is a sense of justice in this world because there are human beings in this world that bear God's image because there's a God 
who rules over all, who is himself just. If you remember last week, the scripture we looked at was righteousness and justice. Same word, tzedakah and mishpat are the foundation of his throne. Today we read that God loves righteousness and justice. So last week we began to get into a little bit of the five facets of biblical justice. We're going to pick it up from there. So first of all, we looked at a little bit last week. I want to elaborate just one final element of this today. I'll go through these five ones right now. So go ahead and have a pen ready. Mark them down. I'll just tell you straight up. We're not going to get through all of them today. So pay attention. Number one is community. First facet of justice, biblical justice is community. Second facet of biblical justice, and I'm distinguishing biblical justice from just general justice or even social justice as is commonly identified in the world today. So secondly is equity. Thirdly is corporate responsibility. Thirdly or fourthly, we should say, is individual responsibility. And then fifthly, advocacy. My hope is to get through three today. So here we go. Let's jump in now. First of all, community. What do we mean by that? What do we mean by that is that others have a claim upon my life and my wealth. And so therefore, I give of myself and what I have voluntarily. That key word is really important, voluntarily. Never under compulsion. What Jesus is establishing is not communism, where there's a hostile environment that says, you're rich, we will take from you and then redistribute it to the poor. That is not how God works. The way that God works is he says, it all belongs to me, and I'll give you some of it, and I'm inviting you, I'm asking you, by having a changed heart towards others, to be generous towards other people. So the key word is voluntary here. We see that God wants us, first of all, to have this posture and this understanding that all things belong to him. So listen real quickly to these passages. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 17. says this, Do not pervert justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widows. He says, But remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and that the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. When you reap your harvest of your field, do not forget uh, to leave a sheaf in the field, that you shall not go back and get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. The Lord your God may bless you. The whole point that he's saying is that, look, as you grow your fields, your crops, all of this produce that you're making, um, go ahead and use it for yourself, but leave what remains on the vine for the next group of people that will be coming in, which he says were the poor, the sojourner, the immigrant, the people that had nothing. That they were given this right by God to go onto the field and to be able to take. That's the entire book of Ruth, if you remember that. In the book of Acts, we see as the early church, early community of Jesus' people, began to be shaped by the Holy Spirit, became part of this movement that God was creating. Uh, we see in the book of Acts chapter 2, verse 44, when the Holy Spirit came upon them and they, be, they were remade people. We're told that the followers of Jesus, they sold their property and their possessions, and they shared their money with those in need. And all the believers, they met together in one place. They shared everything that they had. They worshiped together in the temple daily. They met in each other's homes for the Lord's Supper. They shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship all those that were being saved. So what we see very clearly here is that in the early church, the, the, the key word here is generosity, radical generosity. That's who these people were. They were shaped by the generosity of Jesus. 
And that made them in the type of people that were radically generous. So imagine being in their community that if they found out there was any needs that were going on in their community, they did what they could to figure out ways to alleviate the pain, the ache, the hardship, the suffering, the oppression that they were going through in order to give them the blessing of God. Again, this was not uh, forced. Nobody was like, you know, checking whether or not, hey, how much money do you have in the bank? We want to make, that was, that's, again, we said even something along these lines last week. That's called a cult. We are not a cult. We follow Jesus. And the way Jesus works is he shapes us from our heart. He changes us from the inside out. We become the, we become the type of people that are filled with generosity. And so that's that for community. Secondly, as we begin to jump in, I want to take a look at the word equity. Everyone must be treated equally and with dignity. Now, I want to define equity because I realize in our culture today, this is one of those words that has, in some cases, been co-opted to mean something even beyond what Webster's Dictionary actually means. So I want to read you specifically what Webster's, which has been kind of the predominant defining, you know, institution for I don't even know how long, but you get the idea. Here's what Webster's actually says the definition of equity is. Justice according to natural law or righteous or rightness freedom from bias or favoritism and then he goes on uh, goes on to say impartiality impartiality so again in this list that i mentioned um by the way i didn't make these up these are tim keller's from an article that he'd written i'm just kind of using it as an outline but then crafting in some of the scriptures and my own content so there you go it's kind of this hybrid sermon that you guys are getting you're welcome but the idea of equity is really important because this is something god cares about listen to what leviticus chapter 24 verse 22 says you shall have the same rule and that word that's used there, um, rule, is the word mishpat, which gets translated in other cases, justice. You shall have the same justice for the sojourner, or the immigrant, as well as the native. The same rule. What was the temptation of other nations? The temptation was to treat immigrants with less dignity, value, and respect. But God's saying, look, in my kingdom, in my community, and again, I want to be really clear in here. God's kingdom is not America. Let me be really clear here. I'm not saying that America needs to act in accordance with what God is saying. But if you're a Christian, that's what we're called to. God's reshaping a brand new humanity. And part of that humanity is whereby our hearts are made to look like the one whom we love and have given ourselves to. And that is a God who loves justice and righteousness. So therefore, we are shaped by that same justice and righteousness to love like God loves. So here's what he goes on to say. He describes you to have the same rule or justice for the sojourner and the native. For I, the Lord, am your God. Isaiah 33, verse 15. And again, let me also say this as well. It doesn't necessarily mean that we also cannot have a prophetic voice to speak to our culture as well or our governmental officials when they act in ways that bring uh, destruction or ruin or chaos or pain in the lives of other people. That throughout history, the church has risen with a prophetic voice to speak against injustices. And that and it's the fine balance of being able to walk the way of Jesus. Isaiah chapter 33, verse 15 says this, those who are honest and fair, who refuse to profit by fraud, who stray away from bribes, who refuse to listen to those who plot murder, who shut their eyes to all enticement to do wrong, these are the ones who would dwell on high. So what he's describing here is a category of people, a community of people 
that will choose to live in a way that is in alignment with the heart and the mind and the actions of Yahweh God. And in doing so, God says, I'll, I'll take care of you. I'll lift you up. I'll put you on high. I will be a God that protects you as you pay special mind to protect those that are in the margins, that are forgotten, that are maybe weak or weaker, that are not able to take care of themselves. They might not have a voice. They might might not be able to speak. They don't have the money. They don't have the power. They don't have the the possessions. They don't have the ability. God says, I want you to think about them. And again, he anchors all of this into the narrative that where he regularly says, because remember you guys, you as a nation were once slaves in Egypt. You were once the oppressed people group under the hand of the oppressor, Pharaoh. And I stepped in and rescued you. I didn't need to do it, but I chose to do it. So that's what we see with regard to equity. So number one, we saw community. Number two, equity. Number three, corporate responsibility. Tim Keller would go on to say, these are, there are times, he goes on to say, that, uh, that I am responsible for and involved in other people's sins. There are times in Scripture where God actually holds families, groups, nations responsible for the sins of individuals. There's occasions where this happens. And I think it's important for us to not put an interpretation on this yet, but to just listen to how the Scripture plays out. Then we can begin to think about it in light of New Testament. But first of all, to just understand a little bit about how it plays out throughout Scripture. Uh, For example, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel actually repents of sins that were committed by his ancestors. There is no evidence whatsoever that he had actually himself participated in them. And there's no rebuking of God saying, no, Daniel, you don't need to pray or acknowledge the sins of your collective community. Uh, Daniel just, he recognizes that I'm, I'm part of this whole. Therefore, he prays for God to bring healing. In Joshua chapter 7, we're told that God actually holds whole families responsible for the sin of one member. This is the story of a guy by the name of Achan who steals something. And this entire family actually uh, encounters God's judgment because of what happens here. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 15 verse 2 goes on to describe that God also holds members of a current generation of of a pagan nation called Amalek accountable uh, because of the sins of their former generations, that God says, listen, Amalek, the, the current status, the current community of the people of Amalek need to pay for the sins of their future or their past generations. And so, again, I'm just simply trying to read Scripture to you and point out that this is not a foreign concept in Scripture. Now, how it plays out is something that we can consider. Uh, the question is, why does this take place? Tim Keller, again, suggests Three reasons, which we'll just go into. Number one, corporate responsibility. I'll go through these really quickly. Corporate responsibilities. For example, in Achan's situation, Joshua chapter 7, his family, even though his family did not do the stealing, Achan did, we see that, but they had helped shape the type of person that would become a thief. They shaped him, or they allowed it, or they did not provide the proper parenting skills, or whatever the case was. Again, there's a lot of details that are not in there that I don't want to be guilty of reading into the text, so I want to be careful and limit what I'm going to say about that. But the point of the matter is, is that the possibility of corporate responsibility plays a role here. He goes on to say that Scripture speaks to the important role that family has in the formation of character, which implies that the family cannot wholly avoid responsibility of the behavior of a member. Which, when you think about this, That makes a whole lot of sense because if you have a child 
that even if they're 35 years old and they have a moral failure, as a mom and dad, because you love them, you will involve yourself in the chaos of their life. Wouldn't you? I mean, if you don't, then you're just kind of turning your back on a child that's having a hard time. But the point of the matter is, you get swept up into their chaos, their pain, their hardship, maybe even having to pay their bills or their bond to get out of jail. If they break the law, if they do something that is destructive to someone else's property, uh, there is an involvement that takes place that you are not swept into their chaos. It's kind of an idea of corporate responsibility. Secondly, Corporate participation, Keller would go on to say, sinful actions not only shape us, but they also shape the people around us. Sinful actions not only shape us, but those that are within our sphere of influence. Do you notice that? Have you ever worked for somebody that's just a horrible person in the entire office, or the entire like vibe, culture, is just kind of this toxic environment? Because... That's what happens. Corporate participation. It just kind of, it kind of creates this case. So the, the, the boss is cranky. Now you're cranky. You yell at the other people that are part of that whole situation. And they're yelling at everybody. And all the way down the food chain until you get to the animals. And you're kicking the animals. It's like they didn't do anything wrong. They're a complete innocent victim here. But what's happened here? You trace it all the way to the very top of the food chain. You get to kind of the person at the very top. That's not only maybe abusing their power, but also at the same time, they are creating this deep brokenness. That's why it's so important to understand and identify that we are always being influenced and shaped by something. There's a participation that we cannot separate ourselves from. Again, I know culture tells us, like, yeah, we're all hyper-individual, and it's just me. I'm the only one that kind of makes up my decisions. Straight up, guys, listen, that's false. There are so many influences in your life you're just not even aware of. Um, what's that most recent Netflix thing, The Social Dilemma? If you don't believe what I'm saying, just watch The Social Dilemma, and that will disprove everything that you ever thought in your life, right? It will freak you out. It will make you get off social media because that's probably a good thing to do anyhow. But the point of the matter is this. We are shaped by so many influences one of those happens to be your family of origin. There's an influence that's happening here. And so that plays into this larger picture of God's justice being played out in the context of corporate responsibility. Thirdly, uh, institutionalized sin, as he describes it. He goes on to say sinful actions that become established practices in a culture that are weighted in favor of the powerful and the oppressive over those that are less powerful. Okay, let's take a look at how this plays out in Scripture. I'm going I'm to go through a handful of Scriptures, so get ready to write these down. Number one, we have a biblical example of the criminal justice system. Criminal justice system. For example, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15. Leviticus 19, 15 says this, you shall, not do, or you shall do no injustice in the court. She'll do no injustice. So again, it's a criminal justice system. Someone breaks the law. Someone burns another person's building. Someone loots. Someone causes chaos in the community. They get brought before uh, an arbitrator or a judge. And let's say, for example, that person has a lot of money or they have a lot of public sympathy. And they weight the, the judicial system in their favor. God says, I don't, I don't like that. Because what if a poor person gets in there? 
who's disempowered, has no money, no ability to bribe, no ability to leverage his wealth and power and whatever. Uh, and what happens if that person gets a really harsher penalty? And God's saying, look, don't, don't mess around with the justice system. It's, it's there for a reason. It has value. It has purpose. It could be corrupted, of course. But at the end of the day, God says there's a purpose for that. And I don't want you to create injustice within that system. So not only do we see criminal justice system in the Bible, we also see commercial practices. This is where it gets really uh, painful. So listen, commercial practices. For example, high interest loans. All right, Exodus chapter 22, verse 25 to 27. High interest loans. Some of you are like, wait, is all this stuff in the Bible? It's straight up in the Bible. It's right there, right? Some of you are like, I thought the Bible is totally irrelevant because you are not gospel fluent. All right. So anyways, makes my point. But the point that I want to make is this. There's no guilt or shame about that. I'm just simply highlighting a fact that many of us, we, we might not be aware of how rich this biblical text is and how many ways it speaks and addresses some of these really important issues of our day. So high interest loans, Exodus 22, verse 25 to 27, goes on to say this. If you lend money to any of my people who are in need, do not charge interest as a money lender would. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a security for a loan, you must return it before sunset. This cloak or his, this coat may be the only blanket that they have. And if you do not return it to your neighbor and then your neighbor cries out to me for help, he says, I will hear for I'm merciful. Imagine that. Someone who's really poor and they're like, I don't have any money. All I got is this like Patagonia jacket. It's maybe worth a couple hundred bucks. Can you hold on to this until I'm able to kind of get things squared away? And the guy says, I'll take it. But then he keeps it. In the middle of the night, he's freezing cold. And in the midst of his freezing coldness, he cries out to God, God, I'm freezing. I'm shivering. That guy took my coat. He created an injustice. Says, God says, I will hear their cry in their coldness. <laughs> Just think about that. Which means God knows stuff that you're going through in your life. Again, this is personal application when you consider about that. God knows what type of stuff that we're going through. High interest loans. God says, don't, don't take advantage. Don't gouge. Don't create a system that's taking advantage of those that have less. He goes on to say, another biblical practice is unjust working environment. Unjust working environment. Listen to what Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 13 to 17 says. The Lord says, what sorrows await Jehoiakim? Jehoiakim was a king. He was a really corrupt king. And he built a lot, <laughs> as we're going to find out. Uh, but the way he built, the way he constructed, which, you know, it's not uncommon for kings to build. In fact, it's kind of like, I think, part of the uh, job description of a king. It's like build empires that have your name all over it, right? Create something that's very impressive so that when people see it, Hundred years from now, they can talk about how incredible Jehoiakim is. So the Lord says, What sorrow awaits Jehoiakim who builds his palace with forced labor? The word that's used there is basically oppressed people. They're oppressed. Maybe enslaved. And God's saying, Look, much sorrow awaits Jehoiakim because he is creating such an abusive work environment. And he goes on to say, He builds injustice. Into its walls. He lays his head on his pillow at night in his massive palace. God says, Every single brick of your entire home cries out against the blood that you spilt. Think about that. It's a prophetic word. And then he goes on to say, 
He does not pay for them. Uh, well, let's go back. He says he builds injustice into his walls and he makes his neighbors work for nothing. He does not pay them for their labor. He says, I will build a magnificent palace with huge rooms and many windows. I will panel it throughout with fragrant cedar and paint it a lovely red. What a beautiful cedar palace does not make a great king. Uh, God, or Jeremiah says, but a beautiful palace of cedar does not make a great king. Your father, Josiah, had plenty to eat and drink, but he was just and right in his dealings. Josiah, if you know anything about the history of the people of Israel, it was a great king. God says that he was actually very just and righteous in the way that he dealt with people. That is why God blessed him. He gave justice and help to the poor and the needy, and everything went well for him. Isn't that what it means to know me, says the Lord? But you, Jehoiakim. You have eyes only for greed and dishonesty. You murder the innocent, you oppress the poor, and you reign ruthlessly. It's heavy stuff. We also see unfair and unpaid wages as a part of this whole system. So again, what I'm trying to say is that throughout the Bible, you have occasions where God calls into question the systems or the institutions that have been set in motion. They've been codified. They've been part of the structure of just the fabric of the way things work. And God says, this is an unjust system that is creating destruction and chaos and hurt and oppression upon other people groups that are not able to stand up for themselves. In the New Testament, the book of James says this. James was the half-brother of Jesus. James chapter 5, verse 1 through 6. He says, look here, you rich people. Again, the Bible doesn't say it's wrong to be rich, but it does say if you are rich, you, you, you need to have a special care in consideration about how you are functioning with your riches, how you're thinking about those riches. If you're trusting in those riches as a means to isolate or to insulate yourself from suffering and pain and grief and loss, and you use that as a means to take advantage of other people, God says there's going to come a day when all of your riches will blow away and you'll begin to realize you have absolutely nothing. But the point of the matter of being rich is, is it's not a sin. To love the riches is a sin. He says, but look here, you rich people, weep and groan with anguish because of the terrible troubles that are ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away. Your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold, your silver, they're corroded. The very wealth you are counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure you have hoarded and will testify against you on the day of judgment. For listen, God says, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated in their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields and have reached the ears of the Lord of the heaven's armies. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourselves up for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. He's saying, now look, the people that come mow your lawn, you take advantage of them. The people that pick your food out in the fields, you don't even give any consideration to them. Man, it's something for us to think about. How do we think about people? that make up the major fabric of our culture and society, God says, actually, I think about them a lot, and I care about them. Again, this is not an Old Testament passage here. This is a New Testament passage here. So some of you that are like, well, some of that stuff's Old Testament. Nope, this carries over to the New Testament too, apparently. But the point of the matter is, is because God's character, God's nature doesn't change. He loves righteousness and justice. I think of some examples in America of practices that have become like institutionalized or that have been seasons where they were institutionalized. There's a leader, a guy by the name of Dr. Pat Sawyer. He's actually been featured many, many times on um, Gospel Coalition. Uh, he identifies 
two different types of racist practices that have been a part of American history and society. He describes one as being de facto, meaning it's institutionalized. There's a, there's a law that corresponds with the practice. And then he describes the other as de jour, which means it's, there's not necessarily a law, but it's popular. It's a popular opinion to act in a particular way that is practicing injustice towards other people. Uh, I think, for example, obviously slavery was one of the most profoundly horrifying evils of our culture. That was a part of an an actual institution. It was codified in law, in practice. And then when that became thrown out, which is great, again, America is not a perfect nation. But at the same time, America has been this nation that's been being shaped to form a more perfect union, which is the way it gets described, which means it's not perfect, but it's in this process of forming a more perfect union for all people, all humanities, which means it has made mistakes, but it's also made corrections. And there's new mistakes that it's being identified and making corrections. But the point that I would make is this. Uh, when slavery went to the sidelines, Jim Crow laws were introduced. And this was another new form of de facto elements that were kind of incorporated into the institution and when those were destroyed in the 60s, um, you had all sorts of other ways that kind of now moved into more of a de jour, where people were still mistreating others with other skin color. And again, this is part of the de facto and de jour type of institutionalized elements that can play into our larger culture. And I think that can even carry over into all people. And these are the types of things that I think God would say, I stand against. I think of another institutionalized evil that's very popular in today's culture today. Abortion. It's, it's a de, de facto part of the institution. It's legal. But I would also even say it's de jour, meaning that even if it was illegal, it would still be public opinion that it's okay to murder a baby in the womb. And I would suggest to you, whether it's a black human being or a person of color human being or a policeman, whose job is to uphold righteousness and justice and peace, who are doing their job as best as they can, or baby in the womb. These are things that God would look at and say, I, at the end of the day, am calling my people by my name to embody my ways in this world. Again, however the culture is going to go, that can be decided and defined by way of voting. But at the end of the day, God's people, we should adopt the posture that says we want to live in a way that corresponds with the heart and life of God. God is a God who loves righteousness and justice. Therefore, God's people ought to be the type of people that love righteousness and justice. And it's not until we come to the person of Jesus that we see to the extent that God loves righteousness and justice. That Jesus comes into this world and he embodies righteousness and justice. And as we close right now, we're going to go into a time of communion and of singing. So I would invite you all to stand right now as we reflect upon and think about. If you're here this morning and maybe you're not a Christian or you uh, would not like to partake of communion, that's fine as the people walk by. You don't need to grab one. If you would like one, just raise your hand. They would be happy to hand one to you. We'll sing a song to our online audience. You guys are more than welcome 
anytime to come join us as you feel ready to participate with us live worship, but also to partake of communion. So we will sing a song, and as soon as the song is over, we will say bye to our online community and to the rest of us, many of us. Look, look around, guys. This is awesome. God is doing a really cool work here. Then we will partake of communion together because it is the way in which we remind ourselves week by week the extent of God's love, devotion to righteousness and justice in this world. That he rescued a bunch of really broken people like you and me to be part of his new family. So let me pray. And as you grab the cup, you can just hold on to it until we're ready. I'll partake together. And by the way, if you are unfamiliar with this whole, this whole getup, there's a little wafer on the top, just in case you're wondering. All right. Jesus, thank you for who you are, what you're doing in this world. And we want to say yes, Lord, to all that you're up to.